scripture passage is intense. I mean, horrific might even be a better word for it. And it's, it's actually meant by the author to produce a response of horror and therefore lament. Uh, because a passage like this one is designed to produce a response of lament, we haven't made any attempt this morning to fix it or brighten it up. Uh, instead, we're just kind of allowing today's service to carry that somber undertone. <clears throat> In other words, this isn't what every week is like at North Sub. Uh, but our practice is to aim to put before each other the whole counsel of God, right? which means that some weeks will be super bright and joyful. Other weeks, we will step fully into the depths of brokenness uh, in hopes of receiving the healing and instruction that God wants us to receive in that place. So if you're interested in learning more about our approach to church and to worship services, it just so happens we have a newcomer lunch today. Uh, I sure, certainly share in the excitement that I've heard from so many longtime North Sub folks in recent weeks uh, about all the new faces we've been seeing and what quality people have been coming around our church as guests. And I do hope some of you who are newer here to the church have time to stick around with me after church today to talk more about what God's up to here at North Sub. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Back in March, Christine Emba wrote for the Washington Post, we need a sexual ethic that goes beyond consent. Then just this past week, Louise Perry published a powerful essay entitled, I'm 30, The Sexual Revolution Shackled My Generation. Emba and Perry, they are two of a growing number of young voices writing as self-described progressives, feminists, certainly not writing from a Christian perspective yet, who are arriving at the conclusion that the modern-day fruit of the sexual revolution, 50, 60 years in now, it has not been liberating, especially for women. And we need to recapture, in their words, some sort of external standard for sexual ethics beyond whatever seems right to each individual. Today's scripture text is a reminder that in many ways, uh, Ms. Emba and Ms. Perry, they're not naming a new problem. Throughout history, living by what's right in our own eyes has never actually provided its promised liberation, and women have perhaps borne the brunt of the attendant suffering. Would you turn with me to Judges chapter 19? You turn your Bible or your Bible app, you'll want to follow along with us. We wrap up our summer-long study in Judges today. It's been a sad exercise in many ways, rehearsing this period in the history of God's people, the period right after they escaped slavery and entered the Promised Land, but then right before they were ruled by kings. During this in-between era, the era of the Judges, this cycle has kept repeating. We've seen it over and over. God's people forget about him. They're oppressed by enemies. They cry out to God. He sends a deliverer. They're rescued from their enemies only to forget God once the deliverer dies. That cycle makes up the meat of the book. Right? And the author helps us know how to understand it all by supplying this repeated line over and over again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him, whatever seemed right in his own eyes. And so we've asked the reflection question along the way this summer. What better description of our own society today? Right? Doing what's right in our own eyes. But in the concluding chapters of the book, there are no cycles anymore, actually. Chapters 19 to 21. Just a couple of stories that the author thinks will summarize well just how bad things have gotten as people have lived by whatever seems right to them. Remember last week's story? Chapters 17 and 18, we read an almost comical account of a man who steals silver from his mom and then hires a private priest to lead worship at his personal shrine until an army from another Israelite tribe comes and steals the shrine and the priest away from him. How could things have gotten so far from God's instructions, right? You would almost want to laugh at some parts of last week's story. They're so unbelievable if they weren't so tragic. There's nothing funny at all about this final story in Judges today. Honestly, it makes me 
physically sick, even reading it, much less preaching it, and I'm sure it produces some of the same feelings in many of you. But it's an honest snapshot of just how bad things have gotten. And it's a reminder, too, that, uh, that the Bible takes our pain head on, names it, ministers to us in it, and points us to the only place where hope can be found in this dark world. So this story will be hard to read. For some, this may be especially triggering. We do have a couple of trauma-informed licensed counselors in the back. If you'd like to slip out at any point during the sermon and speak to someone, you can do so on the couches right on the lobby out there. Uh, here's our approach today. My sense is that we can benefit today from the creation of some space midway through this text to come up for air, to process. And so I'm actually going to preach two mini-sermons this morning uh, with a break in between. The first mini-sermon will be on chapter 19, 1 to chapter 20, verse 7. So please do follow along in your Bible or Bible app as I brief briefly trace the contours of chapter 19 uh, itself, and then we'll conclude this first mini-sermon with a few reflections. Judges 19, starting with verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel... A Levite, staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months. Then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had a servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him. And he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. A little background here. A concubine was a wife, but not really a wife. More like property than not. Somebody that a man could get sexual fulfillment from and who maybe bears you some extra children to enhance your status, but somebody whom you don't have to give the rights of a wife. That's why at different times in this text, you'll notice that the Levite is referred to as the concubine's husband on one hand, and he's referred to as her master. On the other hand, he's both husband and master to his concubine. Issue, the people of Israel are not supposed to have concubines. One man, one woman in marriage, and this should be especially true for a Levite like this man. The tribe of Levi, they're supposed to be the set-apart spiritual leaders of Israel, the people who hold themselves to a higher standard. Yet here's this Levite who's doing whatever seems right in his own eyes, which means procuring a sex object for his own service. She ends up being unfaithful. She leaves him and goes back to her home. The Levite decides for whatever reason after four months he's going to pursue her to try to get her back so maybe they can reconcile. We'll see. Her father, whom she's gone back home to, doesn't seem to be harboring any ill will. In fact, if we were to read on, we'd see that her father spends verses 5 through 9, and you can see it there if you browse ahead, trying to convince the Levite to stick around and stay longer. We've had awkward in-law interactions over the years. Verses 5 through 9 may bring back uncomfortable memories of navigating honoring your in-laws on one hand versus setting boundaries on the other hand. Right? It's tricky. Each morning, the Levite wakes up early, determined to get on the road and leave, but then each morning for five days, the father-in-law insists that he stays, and so the Levite gives in and stays another day. Eventually, though, the Levite puts his foot down and says, it's afternoon, it's day five, we've been here long enough, we're leaving, so they get on the road. But all that back and forth has caused a late departure. The problem is that a late departure then was a much bigger deal than it is now. Uh, traveling in darkness was dangerous. There were no hotels, right? So you counted on people's hospitality. You wanted to reach a friendly city before sundown so that you could find someone to take you into their home for the night. That's why the Levite is insistent, if you look at verses 11 through 14, that they not stop in a pagan city. They must reach an Israelite city where the people know God, and therefore we can count on them being hospitable. So let's see what happens. Verse 15. They stopped to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. This is an Israelite city, right? It, it's, it's hard to convey how big a deal this would have been in this society that literally revolved around the necessity of hospitality. But the original readers would have been saying at this point, how, how far has Israel descended? 
a fellow Israelite comes to town and nobody's willing to take him in? If we peek ahead to verses 16 to 21, we'll see there's a ray of hope in the story. An Ephraimite staying in Gibeah. Gibeah is property of the tribe of Benjamin, but there's a guy from Ephraim staying there, and he says, hey, listen, I'll take care of you. Just whatever you do, do not spend the night in the square. And the reader's like, okay, this guy, this Ephraimite, he's a good one. Right? A model of hospitality to look to in a book so devoid of good models. Right? But this host, he's about to be put to the test. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. There's so many levels on which this is an unthinkable departure from God's law. Right? Multiple layers of sexual codes being breached by this wicked men of Gibeah, yes. But there's also the egregious hospitality violations that we might not so readily appreciate here. This, this Israelite city has become just like Sodom. You familiar with Sodom? Genesis 19, we preached... Uh, that passage a year or two ago, townspeople banging on the door to rape Lot's house guests back in that passage, Genesis 19. The author here very intentionally constructs this Judges 19 narrative to match Genesis 19, presumably to communicate Israel has become Sodom, the canonization of God's people is thorough. So what's the host going to do? when faced with his own Sodom situation. Verse 23. The owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Good start by the host, but then any hopes we had of there being someone noble in this story are quickly dashed. The host continues. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them. Do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. This offer is almost too heinous to reflect on. Right? One way Israel is supposed to be distinct from all the other ancient Near Eastern nations is that according to Israel's Bible, our Bible, Men and women share incredible dignity, crowned with glory and splendor as image bearers of God. It's Genesis 1, right? But instead, all of the male characters in this story, including the Ephraimite host, seem to have bought into the worldview of the surrounding nations that women are lesser. And if you don't think that's what this is about, notice, he, the host, he doesn't offer up the Levite's male servant. Right? Despite the fact that the men of Gibeah are lusting after a man. Right? Why? Because the host's highest priority here is to protect male honor. Women, they're expendable. They're property to him and to all the characters of this story. Not just the concubine, right? It's his own daughter, too, he offers up. Women here are chess pieces that can be used to protect men and or discarded at will. Maybe unsurprisingly at this point, the Levite is of the same mindset as his host. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, this is the Levite here, seized his concubine and took her outside to them. raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. It's not just the host who dehumanizes women. The Levite throws his concubine out to them like a slab of meat to wild dogs. And the utter hell that she experiences on this night. how callous this Levite is to this woman that he's supposed to love. Early that morning, the woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed 
at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. When her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her, let's go. But there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. He went to sleep. He walked out the door intending to leave on his journey without even checking on her. He commands her to get up like he would command an animal. This is a woman made the image of God. great value and dignity in God's sight. This is the woman that the Levite has been charged with protecting and caring for and cherishing. And instead, he's chosen to use her to protect himself. And after doing so, he's ready to discard her. He's not done objectifying and dehumanizing her. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine. pieces limb by limb and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel everyone who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now think it over discuss it and speak up instead of treating her body with respect he callously cuts her up and we know that this isn't some sort of tearful, I'm so mad that her dignity was violated in this way. No, no, no. Remember, he was the one who threw her out the door to the rapist and went back to tuck himself in. Now, this man's mad that he lost his property. By cutting up and sending the pieces of his concubine's body, his intention is to muster up Israel to take military action. Revenge against this tribe guilty of this un inhospitable treatment of another Israelite's property. peek ahead a few verses, you'll see that his actions seem to achieve their intended shock value. At the beginning of chapter 20, Israel comes together, all 12 tribes, 400,000 soldiers strong. This is the most united they've been since Othniel, since the beginning of the book. None of the judges was able to get Israel as united, as unified as this unnamed Levite does. But sadly, there's no indication that they're genuinely looking to the Lord. Instead, they're looking to this morally suspect Levite for their cues. And listen to how the Levite attempts to slant the story to make himself look like a hero and absolve himself of guilt. The Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered, I went to Gibeah and Benjamin with my concubine to spend the night. He's speaking to the nation now. Citizens of Gibeah came to attack me and surrounded the house at night. They intended to kill me, but they raped my concubine and she died. Then I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout Israel's territory because they have committed a wicked outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are Israelites. Give your judgment and verdict here and now. Notice first his exaggeration. He makes it sound like it was all of Gibeah, even though we know it was a group of fools within the city. He claims they intended to kill him, where there's no indication of that in the original account. Yet notice what he conveniently leaves out about himself. Why he's on this journey. 
because the concubine didn't want to be with him anymore? Why he ended up in Gibeah? Because he didn't listen to his servants. How the men of Gibeah got hold of his concubine? Because he threw her to them. And to cap it all off, maybe the most disturbing piece of all. I don't know if you caught it when you read this week, but did you catch that throughout this story, it's been intentionally left unclear when his concubine actually died or when she was murdered, to use the term that the author uses in verse 4? Like, did she die at the threshold with her arms outstretched? Because remember, the narrator only said she was unresponsive, not necessarily dead. Opens up the possibility that she may have died on the way as her husband slash master coldly put her on a donkey instead of treating her wounds. For that matter, we can't be sure that she was dead when he started cutting her up. We don't know. The author has intentionally left it open-ended, if you go back and read it, to invite us to wonder who is actually guilty of her murder. And the narrator showing us over and over that to the Levite, she was just an object all along. Three summary reflections on this horrifying account. One, God sees. Even if this unnamed woman was never treated by her husband as more than an object, even if she was never treated by her father or by the host or by the men of Gabeah as more than an object, even if the Levite withholds her full story from the people of Israel, this narrative reminds us that God knows her. God sees her. And that same God breathes into the human author of Judges to put this story together in such a way that we can see her, even if none of the men in her life seemingly did. Dear ones, if you have suffered violence or been a victim of abuse, rape, assault, God sees you. He has seen what has happened to you. You didn't deserve what happened to you. As an image bearer and as a dear son or daughter of God, you should never have been subjected to that trauma. And that God for whom you were made, he still loves you, still today. And he will never love you any less. Secondly, no one is righteous. The sequence of events is every bit the wicked outrage that the Levite says it is. Israel is right to say nothing like this has ever happened before. But what's outrageous and unprecedented isn't just the actions of the people of Gibeah, like the Levite would like us to believe. No, just about every character in this story acts egregiously. And they're all unnamed except for one catch that? It's like the author saying, don't think of this as a problem just isolated to a few bad apples. The whole orchard is diseased. And I think that's important for us to remember and to grasp. Because if our sin isn't quite as out in the open, so to speak, as the sin of the people of Gabeah, then we can become tempted to think, well, I'm not like them. I'm one of the good ones. But just like the people of Gabeah aren't presented as the only sinners in this story, it's the same with us. No one is righteous. Some of us sin in one way, others of us sin in another way, but we are all profoundly guilty and need a Savior. That said, we have a sinful tendency to edit our own stories to make ourselves look better than we are. That's what the Levite does in the early verses of chapter 20, and that's what we do on social media, in job interviews to our neighbors, we elaborate on what we did well and we downplay our failures. But there's freedom that can be found when we admit, hey, the reality of what's in my heart is even worse than what my critics would say. My sin runs deep and I confess it. We have a chance to put that into practice before we go today. But our big idea for this first part of our sermon is this. Let's look to God for our cues on human dignity and sexuality instead of following the dehumanizing ethic of whatever seems right.
even some secular unbelieving commentators are starting to name it. Whatever seems right, that it doesn't result in fulfilled individuals or in a liberated society. A consensus is growing that we need a different ethic. But church, before we say amen too loudly to that, let's ask ourselves, how are we doing what's right in our own eyes with respect to human dignity and sexuality? And in light of this passage, I feel a particular burden to ask the men, in what ways, men, have we sinfully adopted our culture's attitude toward women? Let's be crystal clear, right? Pornography, which is ubiquitous, normalized, so easily accessible, but which objectifies women and harms those performing, those watching in, and those in relationships with those watching. Porn is a distortion of God's intention for sex and is completely off limits for the Christian. But porn is far from the only way that men devalue women. When the Christian is the guy at the office who objectifies women in conversation, when the Christian is the guy in the neighborhood who jokes flippantly about how little he helps with domestic tasks at home, no matter how many laughs those comments might get, in those moments, we're doing what's right in our own eyes instead of treating women with dignity and respect as joint heirs of the grace of life, which is what they are. Here's the thing. A new ethic sounds great, but as many of us have discovered, it's impossible to adopt a new ethic without a new heart. Isn't it? If we're going to live differently with regards to human dignity and sexuality, we need transformed hearts. Hearts that don't self-justify or edit our stories, but that say, hey, the truth about me is every bit as bad as my harshest critics say it is. I'm my own worst enemy and my own biggest problem, and I am in need of rescue. In other words, we need hearts that come broken before the Lord for grace and for repentance. And that sort of heart transplant, replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, is only available through the blood of Christ and the regenerating work of his spirit. But that gift has been freely offered to us. If we'll just throw ourselves on him, the old self, it can be buried with him in baptism, in identification with his death, and it can be raised with him to new life. And that new life comes with a new heart that fundamentally wants to do what's right in God's eyes, not what's right in our own. If we'll avail ourselves of what he offers, we might stand out as a people who live in contrast to the dehumanizing, objectifying ways of this world. And to conclude this first mini-sermon, I'd like to lead us in a time of silent prayer in four parts. I'll provide a prompt, and then we'll make space for a minute or so of silent reflection on each of these four. Would you come before the Lord with me together? First, Lord, we're grateful that you see us. You see, yes, what we've done, but you also see what's been done to us. Just as you saw the unnamed woman in this story and you loved her, so you see and love us. Let's take some time now to silently present before the Lord what we'd like him to see in us. second. Lord, we're aware that none of us are righteous. Some of us have sinned egregiously and out in the open, but others of us have sinned more privately and respectably. 
like the characters in today's story, all of us are utterly lost without you, in need of your grace. Let's take some time now to silently confess our sins, laying them out before the Lord for him to see. time of confession we're aware of our tendency to dress up our stories to make ourselves look better than we are just like the Levite in this story attempted to absolve himself of guilt so we try to make ourselves look heroic while pointing the finger of blame at others let's take some time now to silently tell the Lord the truth about who we really are without any of the window dressing And finally, Lord, we recognize that our culture has discipled us in its way of thinking regarding men and women and dignity and sexuality. We've adopted thoughts and practices that belong to the world and that run contrary to your revealed will. So let's silently ask the Lord now to renew our minds and transform our hearts that we might embody his ways regarding human dignity and sexuality. before you here, Lord, hear our prayer. Forsaken. 
hard to acknowledge in our world today how frequently our solutions bring unintended consequences. For example, problem. Families live so par, far apart nowadays. How am I supposed to keep up with my little nieces and nephews in Texas and how they're growing up, right? So 15 years or so ago, Mark Zuckerberg says, no problem, and he creates a technique called Facebook to solve my problem. But pretty quickly, there's a new problem, because as it turns out, people attempt to post horribly inappropriate content on Facebook. No worries, Facebook says, we've got a technique for that. We'll hire people to moderate content so you don't have to get hit with unwanted images of graphic violence or abuse or pornography. A technique, again, to solve the problem. Ah, but now we've created a small army, I don't know if you've read about this, but of Facebook content moderators working in a secluded location where they're depressed, suicidal, abusing substances to cope because they have to spend all day, every day, in front of a computer screen watching unthinkable videos of the worst of humanity. How do we solve that problem? Problem, solution, cycle perpetuates itself. Alan Noble shares that particular present-day example in his book, You Are Not Your Own. I keep pitching. If we can pull that PowerPoint back up, that would be great. But it's not a new phenomenon that our solutions cause unintended new problems. They always have, and that's exactly what we're going to see happen in the final story in Judges. But for our last 15 minutes or so in the text, let's get a handle on how the story of Judges ends and then make a few observations about the author's conclusion. So remember where we left off, the Levite has made his plea to the people of Israel, and now we get to chapter 20, verse 8. Then all the people stood united and said, none of us will go to his tent or return to his house. Now this is what we'll do to Gibeah, we will attack it. By lot, we will take 10 men out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel, and 100 out of every 1,000, and 1,000 out of every 10,000 to get provisions for the troops when they go to Gibeah and Benjamin to punish them for all the outrage they committed in Israel. Notice, what Israel should have done to the nations around them 18 chapters ago, they're now going to do to a fellow Israel, Israelite tribe. They're expecting a long battle, as is indicated by the call for provisions for the troops, but they're undeterred that this holy war needs to happen in their minds, right? And what brought on this resolve? It was the Levite, remember, standing up in their midst and exaggerating just how many of the people of Gibeah were involved in an act of wickedness. So verse 11, all the men of Israel gathered, united against the city. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this evil act that has happened among you? Hand over the wicked men in Gibeah so we can put them to death and eradicate evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. Instead, the Benjamites gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go out and fight against the Israelites. On that day, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 armed men from their cities. Besides 700 fit young men rallied by the inhabitants of Gibeah, there were 700 fit young men who were left-handed among all these troops. All could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. This has officially become a civil war at this point. If Benjamin would have handed over the wicked people in their midst, the problem could have been dealt with. But it turns out that to Benjamin, tribal loyalty is more important than justice. Does that sound familiar? That people would choose tribal loyalty over what's right? We live in a day like that, don't we? In which if a politician criticizes questionable ethics within her own party, her career is pretty much shot. And in the American church, we have people excusing the sins of their leaders and leaders covering up for each other, all because what's do doing what's right has become subordinated to in-group loyalty. If we had time to read verses 17 to 45, we'd see that the 11 tribes are going to defeat the one tribe of Benjamin, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of lives lost along the way. At first, Israel doesn't ask God whether to fight Benjamin. They just ask which tribe should fight first. So the first battle is a rout in favor of Benjamin. The second time, Israel seems to be maybe a little chastened. So this time, they ask the question they should have asked the first time, should we attack the Benjamites? The second battle turns out to be another rout in favor of Benjamin. And after a lot of weeping and prayer and sacrifice, the people of Israel ask God one more time, do we fight them or do we stop? And in verse 28, the Lord says, fight, because I'll hand them over to you tomorrow. And then Israel stages a successful ambush that overwhelms 
the soldiers of Benjamin. Here's the author's story, uh, summary of the battle's conclusion, verses 46 to 48. All the Benjamites who died that day were 25,000 armed men. All were warriors. But 600 men escaped into the wilderness to Rimon Rock and stayed there four months. The men of Israel turned back against the other Benjamites and killed them with their swords. The entire city, the animals, and everything that remained. They also burned all the cities that remained. Here's the problem, the last verse. Right? When God had called Israel to do just this, actually, to the wicked pagan nations of the land, Israel more often than not didn't fall through with it and do this to the nations that God wanted to drive out. They didn't follow through it. They left them alive, failed to devote the cities to destruction earlier in this book of Judges. But now, when they actually do follow through and completely destroy a people group, it's a family of their own. And there's no indication at all that it's sanctioned by God. When we do what's right in our own eyes, our solutions just cause more problems. And the new problem that they've just caused hits them pretty much immediately, beginning of chapter 21. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, none of us will give his daughter to a Benjamite in marriage. So the people went to Bethel and sat there, sat there before God until evening. They wept loudly and bitterly and cried out, Why, Lord God of Israel, has it occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel today? See what they realize? Wait, now this tribe is going to be extinct if we don't get wives for the handful of Benjamite men we left alive, but we've sworn not to get wives for them from our own. Right? It would be a big deal if a tribe went extinct. Because God's promises to Israel have always been to these 12 tribes. If one went missing forever, what would that mean about God's promises? So Israel's solution caused a problem for which they created a solution, which created a new problem, a tribe threatened with extinction. And of course, Israel is going to turn yet again to another human solution. Verse 4 starts attempt number one at a human solution to summarize what happens in verses 4 to 14 if you look there you'll see that they find that one israelite city didn't show up for the roll call at the general assembly so they say perfect let's slaughter that whole city only leaving the virgin women alive and then those virgin women can be forcibly given as wives to the men of benjamin so they do that tragically and in doing so, they find 400 women who can be wives to the Benjamites. Unfortunately, that's still 200 short of what's needed for the 600 men they left alive. So what now? Well, attempt number two starts in verse 15. Attempt number two at a human solution. This one amounts to, let's let the men of Benjamin uh, take and basically rape and marry the young women of the city of Shiloh. And all you dads and brothers of the young women of Shiloh, just look the other way. And you won't be guilty of breaking your oath that way. And so the book of Judges ends with that despicable story. Capped off by the summary statement we've grown so familiar with. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Five brief observations to conclude this book. One. A king won't necessarily fix this. Remember, the final form of this book is put together after the exile, which means this author writes the book of Judges, having seen how the story turns out when Israel does end up being ruled by kings. Spoiler alert, not good. Right? So why does the author keep saying throughout the book, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what seemed right to him? It seems like the author's communicating at least two things. One, don't blame the kings as if they're the only problem. Look, even without a king, even before Israel had kings, Israel was finding a way to do what was right in its own eyes. But there might be a hint here of a second thing, something deeper, namely that God is supposed to be Israel's king. And since during the time of the judges they're living like he isn't king, there's no reason for them to live any differently from how the people of Canaan are living. In other words, God's dethroning explains Israel's Canaanization. Second observation, this happens fast. Did you catch how long it takes for Israel to go from the high point of entering the promised land with Joshua while crying out, we will serve the Lord, to the absolute lawlessness of Judges 20 and 21? Civil war, multiple rapes, 
It's two generations. An author makes sure we know it's two generations by declining to give us the names of any of the characters in the last couple chapters except for one. You see the name that was mentioned? Chapter 20, verse 28. We learn that Phineas, the son of Eleazar, is serving as priest. Y'all, that's Aaron's grandson. He's the priest during this time. Two generations. Fellow parents and spiritual parents here this morning, this is a reminder that we're in a fight every day. All it takes is for us, parents and spiritual parents, to just kind of casually and half-heartedly pass on the faith-ish to this next generation. And guess what? By the time they're raising kids, those kids of theirs could have almost zero knowledge of the Lord. It happens that fast. Third, external pressures may not be the church's most serious source of danger. This is a reflection on the whole book. In Judges, we saw external threats from the nations around Israel. And the deliverers often saved the nation from those pressures. But the introduction and conclusion to Judges remind us that there was a whole second set of problems, a more important set of problems that Israel is facing all along, namely the spiritual disease and moral corruption within the nation. So today, there are lots of authors YouTube personalities and cable news hosts who would love to convince us that the church's greatest threats are from the outside. Critical race theory, the LGBTQ agenda, higher education, media censorship, etc. Now we don't desire to minimize those threats in any way. Many of them are very real. But Judges has reminded us that even when external pressures are present, we may be equally threatened by spiritual and moral decay within our own ranks. Fourth, in-group loyalty can blind us. It happened to Benjamin. It can happen to us, right? It looks like this. America, right or wrong. My political party, right or wrong. Even, I'm with my pastor, right or wrong. We believe in those moments when we say those sorts of things, that we're being admirably loyal but the fact is, God never called us to defend our in-groups like this. We're really just doing what's right in our own eyes, acting in self-preservation. And such in-group loyalty has produced bitter fruit, hasn't it? Especially with the ab abuse problem in the church. When people hear about how Christian churches have covered up abuse and protected abusers, people's problem with the church isn't so much that they don't believe what we're preaching, is that they're not convinced that we believe what we're preaching anymore. To them, it seems pretty clear. Those Christians, they're just another in-group doing what all in-groups do. They protect their own. Fifth and finally, vengeance is easier than forgiveness. Forgiveness is what should have happened here in chapters 20 and 21. Like the guilty party should have been dealt with. Maybe the soldiers who defended the guilty men of Gibeah too. But then the rest of the people of Benjamin residing in their towns, they should have been forgiven. And the 12 tribes together should have picked up the pieces and moved forward. Not the just burning of cities and killing of women and children. God never calls for that. But when we're doing what's right in our own eyes, we can convince ourselves that our unforgiveness is some sort of righteous justice. And so despite the fact that we have much guilt of our own, we go on this rampage avenging the sins of others, which of course doesn't solve anything, but only creates new problems. Can I ask you, from whom are you withholding forgiveness? And when are you going to remember the great debt of your own that your Lord Jesus forgave such that you extend that forgiveness to the one who has wronged you? Our big idea these last two chapters is this. If we don't look to God to solve our problems, our solutions, so to speak, will make matters worse. If we don't look to God to solve our problems, our solutions will just make matters worse. There are all sorts of problems in this world that I don't know how to solve. How to moderate content on social media without requiring real people to do such dehumanizing work. I mean, I don't know how to solve inflation or racism or anything else without the solutions creating a whole new batch of problems. But I do know the one who can bring real deliverance. The only one who can bring real deliverance. 
in the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him, but one day a king would come. And I'm not talking about that first batch of kings, Saul, David, Solomon. They and their progeny would multiply Israel's problems in many ways. I'm talking about King Jesus. The one who solved our biggest problem and who will one day make all of our problems right. While we were thinking our biggest problems were out there, our biggest problems were really in here, in our own hearts. We had spent our lives doing whatever seemed right to us, without much regard at all for how our Creator wanted us to live, and that put us at odds with God. We were His enemies until a Deliverer came, the Deliverer came, who accomplished the salvation that none of the judges ever could. And he did it by dying in our place. This very morning, we could admit freely that we've been sinful because he wants to wash us clean. This very morning, we can let go of our vindictiveness toward others because he has forgiven us. And this very morning, we can release our problems to him because his solutions are permanent and effective. Now, at the conclusion of this sermon, part two, I just want to finish by carving out an additional minute or two of silence to make room for whatever work you need to do with the Lord in response to what he's revealed to us in his word. Feel free to use the kneelers, kneel where you are, sit, stand, walk around. This is going to be a minute or two of silent prayer to do the work that each of us needs to do with the Lord in response to his word.